Welcome to Lessons in Leadership, Steve Adubato, with my trusty colleague. What am I, Batman I, and Robin? Uh, my we trusty are Batman co- and Robin. I'm Batman, though. You could be Robin. Well, the good. Then you pay the bills. Uh, <laughs> Mary Gamba, our executive producer and co-anchor of Lessons in Leadership. Mary, he has been ducking us for years. We finally have him in the house. He's Andy Duke. The He's one, the my- only. The one, the only. Uh, Andy Duke, who's president of Metro Graphics. We'll put the graphic up the uh, website information about Metro Graphics. Andy Duke, do you admit, in addition to being a very successful entrepreneur and businessman and leader, that you are reluctantly one of my golf partners? I cannot confirm nor deny that. (laughs) Good afternoon, Mary and Stephen. How is everyone? Doing good. good. I just want to know why I'm never invited to these golf outings. And the other day there was salt in the wound because Steve had a text going. I don't know. I think it might have been with Nick, Steve, and talking about getting together. And it sounds so fun. I'm like, I'm the best golf cart driver there is in New Jersey. I could drive a golf cart. Mary, we have to play golf. That's another story. Um, We'll get your lessons. Can we do this? Mary, we were plugging. Scarlin has his. Everybody's got theirs. Andy. Duke, and I don't want to make a big deal about this, but Mary, hold up the shirt. That is the new official Steve uh-huh. Adubato Stand Deliver Lessons in Leadership shirt. And Andy, real quick, Andy, uh, this is a good example of how Andy Duke, attention to detail. What We had the shirts, Andy Duke and uh, the team of Metro Graphics made them. What was this thing that you came up with, Andy, which everyone loves, the thing around the, the, the wrapping? That's referred to as a belly band, and it just makes distribution a lot easier. You can toss them out when you're doing a speech, when you're doing a conference or a learning seminar, um, instead of putting them in a poly bag or having someone have to fold them, and uh, it's easier to take home as well. We gave Mary, we had our leadership academy at the International Union of Operating Engineers just yesterday, their first seminar, Local 825, and they absolutely love the shirts. Enough about the shirts. Andy, as a businessman uh, and a leader, as I said, tell everyone what Metro Graphics is, and then I want to ask you a little bit about being an entrepreneur. Go ahead. We are a print and promotional advertising company in business for over 35 years in the New York, New Jersey area. And basically, that means, Stephen, if it has print um, or ink on it, and it's whether it's a T-shirt, swag, apparel, or print, uh, on paper, we can do it. Toughest part, particularly during the three plus years of the pandemic, the toughest part of being an entrepreneur, other than making payroll, which is not insignificant, is? Well, you've got your workforce issue, getting those um, that are employed by you to come into work during a pandemic. Um, You have the joy of doing business in the state of New Jersey, um, which has taxes and probably the most government regulations of any state that I'm aware of. You have a supply chain in which a lot of our products are coming from overseas. uh, So that was certainly an issue. You have uh, minor things like rent and gas and payroll taxes going through the roof. So, yeah, it certainly was a challenging couple of years for us. Why do it, Andy? Why, given everything you just described, I, I've known you for obviously a long time, not just our golf life, but together with a lot of other friends, we've been together a long time. I can't see you, dare I frame it this way, Andy, working for someone else. Is that it? 
Yeah, most likely. I've been uh, very fortunate from a young age to have uh, been young and stupid and started this. Um, <laughs> and uh, you then have um, not when I say it's a family business, I'm fortunate enough to have my son, my brother, uh, my nephew runs the warehouse. It truly is a family business. Uh, some of my closest friends, uh, my wife's cousin works for us. So uh, there's a lot of lives and uh, people uh, depending on us uh, to keep our doors open every day. So we, I didn't feel like there was ever a choice to uh, crawl up into a ball and close it down. It was how are we going to reinvent ourselves? Uh, we were fortunate enough to be deemed as an essential business. Uh, the relationships that we were doing with the hospitals uh, kept us in business. Uh, we quickly became a uh, provider for everything from face masks to hand sanitizer uh, to Clorox uh, cleaning products. Um, so we kind of reinvented ourselves over those two years and became a distributor throughout the nation for those products during COVID. Jump in, Mary. Yeah, and, and I do want to transition a little bit. Uh, definitely going back to the sports leadership connection. Uh, we talk about that, and obviously you and Steve have played golf together. Can you talk a little bit about the connection there with the life lessons that you learn when you're on that golf course with Steve? What are some of those that you apply to your business and your work life when it comes to leadership lessons you learn from golf? And one of them is always playing by the rules. <laughs> and always keep... Oh, Andy? Andy, you've so, kept a straight face so far. Uh, and, and never losing your cool. Go ahead, Andy Duke. I think funnier than a joke is a true story. And very quickly, uh, early <laughs> in my life, I worked for a large corporation called NCR, National Cash Register. And they had a leadership seminar when I had first started. I was one of the fortunate, uh, one of 20 sales reps throughout the United States to attend out in Dayton, Ohio, the the ivory tower, which they called it back then. And on the second day of this leadership, um, we had a fire alarm go off. The gentleman teaching the leadership course uh, was out the door, down three flights of steps and in the parking lot before the announcement came over that it was a false alarm and please ignore it. From that day forward, I kind of held uh, a belief that maybe leaders and those who teach leadership could be two different people. Um, Stephen, you're well aware you get on the golf course, you get in a foursome with people you know, people you don't know. It's very evident who the leader is, who the leaders are. I'm a firm believer that you can make a leader better. You can teach him how to be a good leader, but I don't know if you can teach someone to be a leader. Uh, mm -hmm. I think in the sports analogy, it's like teaching someone to be fast or quick. You can't teach that. Um, what makes that individual be the coach of the kids little league team to go on to be the president of the golf club to own his own business? I, I don't think that's anything that was taught. That's just inherent. That's your personality. Uh, and we see that every day. Uh, and I'm sure you've come across both good and bad leaders, and you can certainly teach a leader to be better, to be uh, more proactive, to be more compassionate. Uh, but I, I don't know if you can actually teach them to be a leader. Let, let a quick follow up on that. Mary, Mary plays by the rules. Mm -hmm. Mary always believes by playing by the rules. She's a stickler. Andy, do leaders 
have to play by the rules and stick to the rules? Or can you play a little bit outside the rules? Well, if we take the analogy of our political leaders over the last couple of years, apparently not. Um, it would seem that they're supposed to play by the rules, but but apparently they uh, do not. Um, uh, that doesn't necessarily make you a good or bad leader, but I think they have, uh, and, and everyone's going to lead a little differently or, or, or in their own style. Um, mm. But but I don't think that playing by the rules is necessarily a leader trait anymore. But I will say this, Andy is giving me heat all the time as we're playing. And we talk about golf. It's a fun thing we do together, but but there's a lot of dynamics that go on. Andy reminds me that I have to play by the rules, not the rules that I make up in real time as we're playing. He's laughing because he knows it's true. And he's made me a not just a better, not really a better golfer, but a more honest golfer. I want to thank you for that, Andy Duke, and for these wonderful T-shirts that are soft. My wife loves it. It's, it's soft and comfortable, and all of our team has them. And Andy, thank you and the team at Metro Graphics. Any final words of wisdom, Andy Duke? No, sir. Hit them long and straight. And play by the rules. And play by Andy the Duke, rules. Metro Graphics. Mary and I will be back right after this. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is made possible by the Bicino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, the North Ward Center, the New Jersey Sharing Network, Delta Dental of New Jersey, The Helix, Fedway Associates Inc., Veolia, Resourcing the World, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ.com, NJBIA, and New Jersey Business Magazine, CIANJ, and Commerce Magazine, and Meadowlands Chamber, celebrating 50 years of building connections and driving business growth. Valley's all about making life easier for clients, and that's why we're all about smiles, too. So every day, we make it possible for home buyers to become homeowners, for folks chasing their dreams to become entrepreneurs, for parents to plan today for their children's tomorrow, and for communities to get better every day. You see, when we know we've put a smile on a customer's face, well, that puts one on ours, too. Most people don't think about where their water comes from, but we do. Veolia. More than water. Resourcing the world. I am alive today thanks to my kidney donor. I am traveling and more active than ever before. I'm alive today thanks to my heart donor. I'm full of energy and back singing in my church choir. I'm alive today thanks to my lung donor. I'm breathing easy and I'm enjoying life's precious moments. There are about 4,000 people in the years who are waiting for a life-saving transplant. Donation needs diversity. For more information or to become an organ and tissue donor, visit njsharingnetwork.org. All right, Mary, we just heard from my golfing partner and friend, Andy Duke. I just want to be clear. Andy was being very PC, politically correct. 
because I've told this a million times before. Sometimes my golf etiquette, my behavior on the course is not what it should be. It's not always as calm and, you know, what I am here on the show. I have raised my voice over a putt that I thought should have gone in and went around the hole and, you know, complained about the condition of a court, whatever. Have I ever dropped a club, a club aggressively? Yes. Have you ever broken a club? Yes. <laughs> I did know that. That was a setup. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, it was by accident. You see, the fact it, that it by accident the... went over your knee and no. ended up in the woods. No, never did that. That's like some movie thing. Oh, I took okay. a club. The problem was I took my friend's club. I thought it was my driver because it was in my bag and I took it out and I hit a shot, a bad shot. And I went, ah, oh, it's ridiculous. And I hit the head of the driver down and the head came off. And then my friend said, you know, that was my club, not your club. And Andy <laughs> was right there. I'm glad he didn't tell that story. So that's not about me. No. It's not about golf. I'm going to make the transition to the Jonathan Ig yep, interview. Jonathan Ig, yep. We go from talking about my ridiculous behavior on the golf course to someone and something really important. This book, this is King, A Life, an extraordinary biography, best-selling author, uh, Jonathan Ig, who wrote about Muhammad Ali and also, also the book is called Ali, and the other book he wrote is about uh, the Yankee great Lou Gehrig. So Jonathan Ig talks about a whole range of important aspects of King's life that were not understood. His position on the Vietnam War, the pushback he got from that, his position as a leader who comes out of the church movement who really didn't like politics at all. Mary Gamma doesn't like politics either. And who King was as a person, his frailty as a person, his the fact that he was a man, not a saint, a human being, not perfect, no such thing. Jonathan Icke, talking about Dr. King, talk about a lesson in leadership, here it is. And we're back with Jonathan Icke. I, I mentioned that we were going to talk about the um, Vietnam War. Tremendous pressure on Dr. King not to speak out on the war in Southeast Asia. It was like, look, we got enough problems right here in Watts, in Newark, my hometown, in, in urban communities across this country. Race relations are what they are. What are you doing talking about Vietnam? He did it. He never backed down from it. Talk about it. And let's remember that the war was still pretty popular at that point in the mid-60s. And he was certainly getting criticized by um, the Hawks um, in Congress and by LBJ, who felt and like the Johnson was a administration, who I'm sorry for interrupting. Lyndon Johnson, the president, after Kennedy is assassinated November 22nd, 1963, Johnson becomes president. Johnson is an ally to some extent to, to King. But then Johnson saying, what are you doing? You're, you're hurting me. Go ahead. That's right. Um, King and Johnson are great allies. They're fighting together to get civil rights legislation passed, and they have a, they seem to have a really warm friendship. Of course, it's being tainted somewhat by uh, J. Edgar Hoover, who's filing right. constant memos to the president about King's sex, sex life. But then when Johnson finds himself being drawn in deeper and deeper in Vietnam and having night, literally having nightmares about it, um, King begins speaking out on the war and Johnson takes it personally. Why are you attacking me? This is, you know, already giving me headaches. And now I've got to worry about you coming out against me for the war. But on top of that, King is being criticized by his own people, by his supporters in the civil rights movement, by his closest friends who are saying, you're pulling yourself in too many different directions at a time. You, we don't have the bandwidth to take on anything besides civil rights. Stick to what we're good at. 
and you're you're just costing us support. You're costing us manpower. We can't really deal with this anti-war protest. But King says, I got to do what I believe. I got to do what's right morally. It's not about what's right, what's practical. He did it because he believed it was right. But come back to, closer to home, if you will. Talk to me about King and Selma. So, you know, King is constantly throwing himself into these situations in which he um, is relying on chaos. You know, if we're going to talk about his leadership skills, he's not a traditional leader. He's raised in the church. He's raised to lead a congregation, but to lead an organization, to lead a movement, he has no experience in that. He's making it up as he goes along every step of the way. And in Selma, he's being criticized for not leading the, the first walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, for appearing to seek compromise with the with the administration to avoid um another un, un, unpleasant scene another violent scene on that on that bridge as they attempt to walk from selma to montgomery and so king is getting it from all sides um the younger civil rights activists in SNCC are criticizing him the presidential administration is criticizing him for, the students for, for non student nonviolent coordinating committee that's john lewis's organization john lewis decides and john to march lewis was beaten to an inch of his life as he walked across the pettus bridge but go ahead that's right. But other members of SNCC wouldn't go because they didn't want to lend their support to King. They thought he was too conservative, that he was playing it too safe. Conservative? And, um, yeah, they thought he was he was too conservative because uh, he was in talks with the administration. He was he was agreeing not to march um, until a federal judge's order um, was was uh, concluded. So people thought he was wishy washy. So King was getting it from all sides. He was under attack uh, from people who thought he was too liberal, from others who thought he was too conservative. Um, and it made it, you know, very difficult when you're the national leader of an entire people and the head of the spear that you're never going to be able to please everybody. Talk about um, the March on Washington, the I Have a Dream speech. Put it in context. Well, it's the summer of 63. It's right after Birmingham. Um, there's legislation pending for civil rights and and President Kennedy is, is urging King not to march because he's afraid that if violence erupts, it will doom any attempts to get legislation passed. And King insists on coming. He's tired of people saying, wait, take your time, trust us, be patient. Um, people have been hearing that for hundreds of years and where did it get them? So he leads this march and it comes off, of course, beautifully. He gives his famous, most famous speech, I Have a Dream. And and we see this moment, really this gorgeous, beautiful moment where black and white people are holding hands and singing in harmony. And the country seems like it might really be ready to turn a corner. And I think everyday people watching on TV at home feel like we might be ready to really make some progress on this issue that has divided us and bloodied us for so long. And yet what happens right after the March on Washington? What happens to that moment of hope? Well, the FBI announces two days later that King is public enemy number one when it comes to race, that he's becoming too dangerous, too powerful. And then just, you know, soon after that, we see the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in, in Birmingham, which is basically um, white members of the Klan saying, we're not ready yet. We're going to we're going to fight this to the death. And children are killed. And, and innocent children are killed in that church. So, Jonathan, let me ask you this. What. What do you think, given all the research you've done, given where we are as a nation in 2023, as it relates to race relations, civil rights, affirmative action, put it all together. And also how incredibly polarized we are. A friend of mine said recently, um, who is a strong supporter of the so-called MAGA movement and Donald Trump, and yes, he is a friend of mine. We don't see the world the same way, but 
That's who he is. And we grew up together. He said, Steve, you know that sooner or later, people have heard me say this before, we're, we're, we're about to face a civil war. And I said, what do you mean? And without going into too much detail, I don't believe he meant racially. I think he meant politically, which in some ways does have to do with race. What do you believe Dr. King would say and or more importantly do to help us come together and not be as polarized and divided as we are, bordering in the eyes of some on a so-called civil war? Loaded question, I know. Well, one of the miraculous things about King is that he had an ability to speak across lines, black and white, north and south, left and right. His, his appeal was based on the fact that he was calling out to our principles as Americans and our believers in God. And he was able to unite that. He was able to say that if, if we are wrong in seeking justice, if we are wrong in seeking equality, then the Constitution must be wrong and the, and the Bible must be wrong. And people found something in, in his message that resonated um, even if they even if they weren't necessarily on board with the civil rights movement. Right. And I think, you know, that gives us hope that there may still be things that unite us. It, it seems hopeless now, but I would argue that things were a lot worse in King's day. I would argue that, that, that black people faced a lot more um, violence and inequality uh, by law um, and, 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 and in practical matters as well um, day to day than they do today. We've made an, a great deal of progress, but King warned us that it wasn't enough. He warned us that we still had work to do and that we needed to stay awake. We needed to stay alert to change and we needed to keep fighting or else we would, we would backslide. Loaded, even more loaded question. What do you think Dr. King would say about Donald Trump? <laughs> I, I think um, he would be against anybody who tried to divide us. And I think... Um, he was somebody who was a great unifier, who believed in God, who believed in the Bible, and believed we all needed to try to walk in the steps of Jesus. That was his religious belief, and and he tried to live up to that. I think that um, he would criticize anybody who who came to power um, by by attempting to divide rather than to unite. Hmm. What do you think he would have said about Barack Obama as president? Obviously, you know, I think he'd be enormously proud of having a black man as president of the United States. I think he might have been surprised that it took as long as it did because people were talking about it in the 60s. People were pushing him to run for president. Uh, he was well, why, not I'm sorry, for John, Jonathan, I'm sorry for interrupting. Why do you think he never actually, again, only 39 years of age when he's assassinated? Why do you think Dr. King never, unlike Reverend Sharpton and others who come out of the, re, this, the, uh, the, the church and others, uh, who are in Congress now as we speak. Why do you think he never seriously considered running for office? Because even in your book, he never did. I don't think he liked politics and I don't think he really understood it. Um, he was he was a preacher and he saw his role as being pre someone who preaches to the nation and tries to save the soul of the nation. But politics was was a dirty kind of a business and he never really understood the way they worked. If he did, if he did understand politics, he would have used his leverage with President Johnson to say, get J. Edgar Hoover off my back. And I don't even think that ever occurred to him. So, so there's this place in a phone call saying, hey, listen, you're supposed to be my friend. I'm helping you. You're helping me get this guy who's heading the FBI off my because he's destroying my life. He's not going to, which that's what a lot of politicians would do. And I'm not even saying it's wrong, but he wouldn't yeah. even consider that. I don't think it ever crossed his mind. And I think in a way, <laughs> um, LBJ um Man of lost respect for him because he didn't ask for that. He didn't ask the, for anything. The quintessential politician, Lyndon Johnson. That's right. And that's why I don't think they really understood each other. Really? And what was this? Real quick on this, because I had a minute and a half left. 
the Kennedys. I'm a student of the Kennedys as well, read more than most, still curious about them and finding out things that I realized um, they're often not what I thought they were. Translation. The, Robert Kennedy, who said important things the night that King was killed, important things that tried to keep the lid on violence impossible in the eyes of many. But they were not always supportive of Dr. King, were they? Please, the Kennedy administration. Well, you know, it was RFK who authorized the wiretaps uh, on King's home and office. As attorney and general. JFK knew about his it. Brother. Sorry, for, he was attorney, As attorney general. general. And, they, and Robert Kennedy had to sign off on that bug. Sign off on it and reauthorized it. Even after the evidence emerged that King was not doing anything related to communism, he still reauthorized it. Why? And, um, because he was uh, afraid of, of J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover had the dirt on the Kennedys as well, and, uh, and RFK knew that. At the same time, King was really disappointed with the Kennedys for, for slow-walking civil rights legislation. He felt like, this is what you believe in. This is what you promised us. We got you elected. Where is the payback? King was always disappointed by that. Jonathan Ig, the author of an important book, King, A Life. Get it, read it, learn from it. Jonathan, I cannot thank you enough and wish you all the best and look forward to your next work. Thank you so much. Mary, what a powerful interview with Jonathan Ig about uh, Dr. King. Your biggest takeaway from that? Yeah, just the amazing ability for a human being to just lead an effort and to have people follow and just create a whole movement. And the way that Jonathan captured that is just amazing. So I highly recommend check out that book. It's a great read. What's the thing that we would say to the to the young adults in the Stand and Deliver program, the quote that comes from Gandhi? What is yeah, it? Yeah, be the change. Be the, be the change, change you wish to see, to see in the world. world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be the change you hope to see. That was Dr. King. And, you know, I just want to be clear. For people, I love when people do this. They'll, they'll nitpick, well, Dr. King was a man of the cloth. He was a religious leader. Um, but he had affairs on his way. I'm thinking, so wait, let me get this straight. I don't, I'm not here to explain or justify anything in Dr. King's life or anyone else. But last time I checked, we're all human beings. We're flawed. You can be this extraordinary civil rights leader who changed the world, who won the Nobel Peace Prize, who was assassinated at 39 years of age because of who he was and what he believed in terms of people being judged not by the color of their skin, but rather by the content of their character. Yeah, not perfect. Okay, who among us is? So it's always interesting to me that people do that um, and then make all sorts of excuses for other leaders who they happen to like, who are really flawed in meaningful ways. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. So for me, the other thing about Dr. King, Mary, that you know more, better than most is that Dr. King, I've also called in many of our seminars, the greatest public communicator, not just of the 20th century, but of all time. From my experience studying public communication, the greatest, most powerful, most influential leader who communicated in public to move people to action, you say? I agree with you completely. It's just, if you ask anybody on any street corner, any age, anywhere, anytime, they know who he is, and that's for very, very good reason. So I agree with you completely. Yeah, and so Dr. King was a lot more than that extraordinary I have a dream speech, which which if he did if he did nothing else, that would have made a big difference. But he did so many other things. He was so many other things other than a great speaker. So um that's Jonathan Ike. Make sure you get the book, King, A Life, for Mary Gamba, 
for the entire, uh, Elvin is saying goodbye. Hi. Oh, you're saying, oh, you want me to say goodbye. <laughs> so for our entire Lessons in Leadership team after a long tape day, Lessons in Leadership, see you next time. This edition of Lessons in Leadership is made possible by the Bicino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, the North Ward Center, the New Jersey Sharing Network, Delta Dental of New Jersey, The Helix, Fedway Associates, Inc., Veolia, Resourcing the World, the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Choose New Jersey, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. That's stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ.com, NJBIA, and New Jersey Business Magazine, CIANJ, and Commerce Magazine, and Meadowlands Chamber, celebrating 50 years of building connections and driving business growth. all about making life easier for clients. And that's why we're all about smiles, too. So every day, we make it possible for home buyers to become homeowners, for folks chasing their dreams to become entrepreneurs, for parents to plan today for their children's tomorrow, and for communities to get better every day. You see, when we know we've put a smile on a customer's face, well, that puts one on ours, too. Most people don't think about where their water comes from, but we do. Veolia, more than water, resourcing the world.